morning again. So we spent, you count this morning, 12 weeks in this little letter and we finally come to the end this morning. Paul touched on the major themes in the first five verses of this book, this letter, his apostleship, the resurrection which ushered in the new age, the fact that Paul is not a rogue apostle out on his own, the cross of Jesus Christ, our deliverance from the present evil age, and the fact that all glory belongs to God alone. And this is where Galatians also ends. If Paul's thesis is true, that we are justified, we're made right with God by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, apart from works, obedience, or ethnicity, then all grounds for boasting in ourselves has been destroyed. Salvation by grace through faith alone means that all human boasting, all reliance on our obedience to the law or our works is pointless and powerless. And this is how Paul closes this great letter, by revealing the true motivation of these false teachers. It's all been about their own glory, their own names, which gives him the opportunity to clarify the key difference between the person who seeks to be justified by their works and the person who desires to be justified only by God's grace in Christ Jesus. And it all centers on the cross. Every road in human history, every path our lives can take for every man, woman, boy, and girl, all roads lead back to Calvary. So we cannot, but we must not, escape the cross. So if, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11, and I'll read through verse 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your grace would be with our spirits this morning. Lord, please be with me to help me preach. Please be with everyone else to help them listen and hear what you are saying to us in your word. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can be seated, everyone. In verse 11, Paul wanted to emphasize how serious he was, how important this all was. He loves these people. And the sad thing is they're being deceived, they're being bewitched, as he said earlier, by people who don't even care about them. 
right? All the Galatian believers were to these Judaizers was a notch in their belts. Nothing more. Look at verse 12. For even those, I'm sorry, verse up in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So the main reason these false teachers were disputing Paul and trying to capture the minds of the Galatian believers and bring them over to their side was really because they wanted to make a good showing in the flesh. They wanted to look good. And you would look pretty smart and powerful and important if you could take a group of people that had been brought up in the gospel by the Apostle Paul himself and get them to leave him and agree with you. And that's what this has all been about, really. It really wasn't that these Judaizers were so zealous for the purity of the law and for circumcision. The true, the deepest motivation was not the honor of God or the integrity of Scripture. And again, if that's what legalistic people were truly so worried about, they wouldn't be legalistic. They couldn't be. Right? If they really wanted to honor the Scripture, how in the world could they ever look to themselves or their own works or take any stock in themselves? If they were really concerned about the glory of God and not themselves, how in the world could they be focused on their own works and on rules for themselves and for others? This all goes back to chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. That if we're fixed on making sure other people are doing the right things, what's motivating us is not a passion for God's glory, but a passion for our own name and our own legacy. The passion of these false teachers to get these believers out from under the influence of Paul was a cover for their own pride, just as it was in their forefathers, the Pharisees. That's why they were trying, as the text says, to literally force these believers to be circumcised. This is always the modus operandi of those who are teaching what is false. They are motivated by pride, so they rely on power. Right? Remember back in 2.14 when Peter was trying to force, same word, force Gentiles to live like Jews. When you do not have faith in the God of grace to do His work by His Spirit, which is pride, the only thing you have to rely on to see the results you want to see is force, manipulation, rules, guilt. We try to force ourselves to get better by our own effort. We try to force others to get better by our own pressure. And beloved, it is all pride. It's all pride. It's all an inflated view of the self and what we are capable of precisely because the cross is on the periphery. As the latter part of this verse makes clear, we can't ever forget these false teachers did not deny that you needed Jesus. Right? If that would have been what they were saying, they would have been turned away at the door. That is not what they are saying. That is never what legalistic people, Pharisees, are saying. They're never saying, no, you don't need Jesus. They're just saying you need more than that. Yes, we need Jesus, but we also, right, in order to be right with God, to genuinely become a part of His people, it doesn't sound so bad. It sounds spiritual. It sounds logical. It sounds like wisdom, but it's absolutely cancerous. It's fatal to the Christian and to the body of Christ. We need to call a spade a spade. A passion for others to get it right. The constant pressure on yourself to get it right 
is not religious piety. It is not honoring to God. It is not done for His name. It is not done for His glory. It is pride masking itself as religious passion and concern. It's our desire to make a good showing in our flesh. Grace clears the air and serves the body of Christ precisely because force is a concept foreign to it. There's no force in grace. There's no need for force precisely because what holds it up is the belief and the knowledge that Jesus has already done all the work. The false teachers are motivated by their pride because they don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And again, nothing in all the cosmos is more offensive to the human heart and the human will and the human nature than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. People hate it. They take offense to it inside the church just as much because it says no to human ability. God is not interested. It says no to our contribution. It's not good enough. We are not good enough. That's the whole reason for the cross in the first place. If human beings, the descendants of Adam, want to be redeemed and forgiven and justified and righteous, it will take the blood, sweat, and tears of one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. No other works, no other effort, no other person is worthy enough to buy their salvation. See, it's, it's not popular. We don't like it when we talk about it. It feels wrong, right? How can I not have, how can this not at some point be about me, right? We don't like it. On one side of the cross is God's immeasurable, unexplainable, unbreakable, redeeming love for humanity. On the other side is His wrath His commentary on just how wicked and unable human beings truly are. And what we're finding in letters like Galatians, what we see bear out in real time, is that if you stay, if you champion the cross, if you champion grace, if you agree with God on what saves people, you will be hated for it. You will be an annoyance to people for it. Few in the history of the world have known that more than Paul, whose whole life in Christ was persecution. So, If you stay on the side of law and circumcision, if your platform is, don't listen to that pessimistic naysayer telling you that there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. You, you, there, there are a few things, right? You can try your best to follow the law. You, you could, in their time, you could get circumcised. You do have some value in your salvation. You have something to contribute. If you champion that, the the world won't persecute you. The world will embrace you. That's what they already think. That's precisely why we're finding these false teachers did not preach Christ crucified alone. They wanted to be exalted and praised and honored in the eyes of people. And if that's what you want, you cannot preach exclusively the cross of Jesus Christ. You're going to have to preach something else or you're not going to get any glory. They didn't want to be considered, as Paul was, the scum of the earth. Here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. All these people that we live to impress, all these people that we want shouting our name and honoring our greatness and thinking highly of us, not one of them can redeem our souls. Not one. 
They didn't die for you. They didn't bleed out for you. They weren't spit on for you. They weren't hung naked in front of everyone for you. They didn't live a sinless life for you. They didn't submit themselves completely to the Father's will for you. They didn't leave the untouchable glory of heaven for you. They are you. They are me. They aren't Jesus. Our desire for the approval of others is nothing more than love for ourselves. It is love for self that motivates legalism. It is love for self that motivates wanting to look good to others. It is love for self that motivates force. It is love for self that motivates the rejection of the cross alone for salvation. Verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Because they can't boast in their keeping of the law. They aren't doing it. Again, think back to verse 4. Nobody has more trash in their backyard than the Pharisaic legalist. Right? I mean, nobody. Some of the people that scream the loudest about other sins are so full of wickedness it would embarrass us if it was uncovered. It's part of the reason they're so loud about it. Jesus called out the Pharisees this way. Right? He called them whitewashed tombs who cleaned the outside but were filled with dead men's bones on the inside. Shiny dishes outside caked with dirt and grime on the inside. And these were the loudest moralists in Israel. An obsession with other sins usually comes from people who are infested with their own. It's not that they were automatically, we don't know that, doing worse things than others. It's that on top of their wickedness was the disgusting troll of self-righteousness. They notice the specks in others' eyes, but can't see the logs in their own eyes. Their passion for the law did not result then in obedience to the law. It never does. Only a fool would try to live by what Paul calls the ministry of death. Remember 3.10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because no one perfectly keeps the law. So we can always rest assured that anyone imposing the law on other people is breaking it themselves. But these false teachers sure wanted the Galatians to keep every jot and tittle of the law. Then they could boast on what their ministry was doing in others, right? They honestly thought they could keep the law and that other people could keep the law. Their view of themselves and others was way too optimistic given the truth the Bible proclaims since it included that we can do a little bit. We can perform something, right? That's not coming from the gospel. Where, where, where are my works in the message of the gospel? Where are they? So I'm sure these men could tell you how many adherents they had, right? How many scalps they, you know, how many scalps of converts they had amassed over the years. They counted it all because they're always trying to light up the scoreboard so people will look at it. Their goal was to boast in others following them, which means there's no way they could have taught the cross. So their addition to Jesus nullified anything positive they did happen to say about Him. There's no way they could have said Christ alone. Then all the credit would go to Him. 
Then people might not remember their names. They might not remember the fact that it was them who had told them about Jesus. No, all the focus and the lights would have been on the Savior and not the saved, on the Savior and not the messengers. So how would they ever be able to boast in themselves, which was the goal of their whole ministry? Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else. No caveat. No qualification. No nuanced things here. Just far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. God forbid, says Paul, basically, that I boast in anything else. What a strange statement. Now it's lost on us to a large degree because we never really got to see how repugnant a cross was. Jews and Gentiles in the first century found it abhorrent. Right? Death on a cross was the penalty for slaves. You hung for hours until you suffocated or they broke your legs so that you would, so you couldn't push yourself up anymore to get air. You bled and wheezed and spit you were most likely naked, right? Just to add to the shame, you would lose control of your bodily functions in front of everybody. It was awful, awful. And it gets so sanitized in the movies. It was created to display shame and pain and humiliation. It was a horrible instrument of execution. And this is Paul's one and only boast. The only thing Paul will take pride in, so to speak. The only thing Paul will claim is the source of his identity. It would be like saying today, God forbid that I boast in anything other than being beheaded on video by ISIS. That's not a clean swipe. They hack those men like you would cut off the head of a pig. It's disgusting and horrible. This is my only boast. Could you imagine that? The equivalent. That's my only boast. How this sentence would have infuriated his opponents. Just infuriated them. How they would have mocked him for this. Derided him for this. Accused him of all kinds of things for saying something so stupid. What a loser. What an idiot. What a joke. Why so negative? Why focus on just the cross? 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. Paul was a little obsessed with this embarrassing cross. All he boasted in, all he wanted to know, all that he was willing to look to to find his identity was the death of Jesus. It begs the question then, in what else exactly would we like to boast? When the day comes and we stand before the King and Creator of all the universe, the Holy and Sovereign Lord, God the Father Himself, what are you going to boast in? What am I going to boast in? What are we going to say? I didn't cuss too much. I I never killed anybody. I never took a drink. Here are the list of my accomplishments. And we might say, Tony, that's so foolish. There's no way you would say that. We don't boast in those things now? Of course we do. 
Of course we do. Our boast is in ourselves. Right? My, you hear it all the time. My gift, my ministry. Me, 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 me. That's, that's what your identity's in. That's why you think God likes you. So let's just stop playing around. Have just a few moments, if we can, of respect for our Lord Jesus and what He went through for us. We do realize that He went through what He did because all that stuff is filthy rags to Him anyway. It's tragic how highly we can think of ourselves, how serious we can take ourselves when Jesus had to bleed naked for us to get saved. What are we bragging about? We have the arrogance to list our good deeds, to keep track of our accomplishments, to look down on others, to talk to our brothers and sisters so often in Christ for whom He died like trash if they offend us or disagree with us or never forgive somebody, never let anything go, never overlook an offense because how dare you offend me? How dare you hurt me? How dare you not respect me, right? Me, 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 me. Tony, do you want to take away everything from us that we've done? Right? Is, is that your goal? Do you want to make us feel like we should count everything we've done as, as rubbish or something for the manure pile? All this hard work we've done for God that we find our identity in and take stock in to know that we belong to God? Yeah, I do. And mine too. So that we'll boast only in the cross. I don't have a resume anywhere near what Paul has. And Paul says, yeah, I count it as all rubbish. Rubbish. Is that how we talk about what we do and have done? As though it's trash? We can't obey God's law perfectly, which is precisely what it requires. We can't keep our thoughts consistently clean and pure, let alone our words and deeds. Right? And it doesn't matter how faithful God has been to us, we still sin, we still dishonor Him, we still spit in His face sometimes with our rebellion, we still take His honor so lightly. We are in such a state that Jesus had to say of us, when I return, will there be anyone on the earth that has faith? Beloved, who in this world has the right to look to themselves for anything? In what can we boast? In what can we rely on to find the reasons for God to accept us? The the only thing it makes sense for a human being to boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. Literally, specifically the place where He died. We make our boast in who He is and what He has done, what He has accomplished, what He obeyed, what He committed. Why is it so offensive to us? Why is this message so offensive to us? Right? It's offensive right now as I'm speaking. It's like, this is like, this is a heavy or a negative sermon or something. Why? Why is this offensive? Why is this troublesome to hear? Like, what did we think coming in? Do we know in whose presence we have gathered this morning? Do we know before whose face we live our entire lives? God is not some 
fair maiden sitting in the audience waving his fan, waiting to applaud us for things that we do. He's holy. And there is no other. And everything that exists, all things have been created so that one day He will be all in all. Heaven is not a hall of mirrors. We'll get the salvation. He'll get the glory. So everybody down. What other response is there? Everybody low. Everyone on their knees before Him. Who do we think we are? We just trounce around like, like we're really something. Beloved, let us cover our mouths for a while before the King of Kings. It's not going to hurt anything. It's not going to hurt anything. Paul says, by the cross the world has been crucified to him and he has been crucified to the world. By the cross the world is dead to Paul. He doesn't need its praise. He doesn't trust its strength. The present evil age, this world is dead to him. And he's dead to it. He finds no life there, depends on nothing there, trusts nothing there. Because the cross is his boast, Paul is also dead to the world. The world hates him, it despises him, he was a burden and a nuisance and an anomaly. The cross is the hinge of human history. Eternity hangs on which side of it we reside, on whether we despise it or make it our only boast. All that Paul boasts in is the death of Jesus. If you were to compliment Paul's life or faith or commitment, he would shush you and he would point you to Calvary and say, there's the one to be awed by. There's the one to respect. There's the one to honor. He would deflect to Christ all the time. Lest anyone think his boast is for one second in himself and who he is and what he's done. You see, the cross demands this kind of just self-deflection. It, it just What else could it result in in us? How do we look at him hanging there and exalt ourselves and our ability? If our ability was worth two cents before a holy God, the cross wouldn't have happened in the first place. Paul wasn't trying to make a name for himself. So many decisions I make, so many decisions we make as people is because we, we, we want to look good. We, we want to have a name. We, God made sure that Paul's name lasted. Paul had no idea this was going to happen, I don't think. Not to the degree that it does, that we'd be reading him in Moundsville, West Virginia in 2019. God made sure Paul's name lasted. That wasn't what Paul was trying to do. Right? Paul didn't. Paul didn't do that. He, he didn't want anything to do with that. If we try to make our name last, we can rest assured God will snuff it out because we can't save anybody. right? We, we can't save anybody. It's, it's a beautiful statement and it's so ironic. There was a reformer named Count, I don't even know his first name, I can't think of his first name, Zinzendorf, who said, uh, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. It's a wonderful sentence. It didn't work. I, I just said it, right? It didn't work. 
preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. We didn't forget about it, right? We, we didn't do what he wanted. It's on, I think it's on his tombstone. <laughs> so, <laughs> all things exist so that he will be the center, no one else. He's, he's not going to allow that to happen. Through the crucifixion, we are dead to this present age, and this present age is now dead to us. Because through the cross, Jesus has started a whole new world, right? The green grass of the new creation is springing up all over through the cracked concrete of this world. Nothing stops it. Nothing can hinder it. No government, no law, no person can snuff it out or keep it from growing. It can't happen. 1, 4, 2, 20, 3, 1, 3, 13, 4, 4, and 5, 5, 1, 5, 11, 6, 12, 6, 14, right here. If we've been listening, the cross and what Jesus accomplished there has been the center of this whole letter. Beloved, this world is not all there is. Eternity is coming. And this God we worship is holy. There is nothing we can offer that He is interested in. That is not the message the church proclaims. Bring your best and God will do the rest. Leave your best at home or He will not take you. He has provided for us the only thing that will save us. His own Son who bled and died under the punishment and weight of His own Father's wrath to pay the price for forgiveness and righteousness of all who believe on Him. Jesus wipes everything else away. Everything. It's Him or it's nothing. Make Him your boast. Make Him your boast. For, verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Do you hear that? Our works, our dedication, our commitment, our piety, our names, they count for nothing. We could stack on one side of eternity's scale every single good deed from every single solitary person that has ever lived, every good intention, every well-meaning word, every penny given to an offering or a charity, every accomplishment, every kind thought, every kind word, all of it on one side, and one drop of the blood of Jesus Christ on the other side, and it would flip the scale so hard and so fast that all that goodness would go careening out into the vacuum of space for eternity. Just one drop of blood this precious and powerful and sufficient and perfect and pure. Amen. So what in the world am I going to boast in? What in the world... You could be circumcised and you could do a decent job obeying the law. Or you could not get circumcised and realize you don't need that and be pretty faithful. Both will count for nothing. There's never a point where it's on me. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the reason Paul wrote this letter. Because nothing we do counts for anything. And the false teachers are trying to convince the Galatians that what they do will earn God's favor. You might say, wait wait a minute. Why, why would you tell people that nothing they do counts for anything? What's behind that question? Leave it to God. 
it's, it's not like, so it doesn't matter what you do. Forget it, just go home and die. No, no, no. Paul didn't do that. Paul worked harder than anybody. No, the, the point is the perspective of the soul that has determined what's going to matter. The glory of Christ or the glory of me. Right? That's where the difference is. Not in anything else. It's, it's in what we will take our boast in. Why is it so important to us that, that we've got to make sure it matters? God will make sure it matters. God will make sure it matters. Right? We, we, we plant the seed and we go to sleep. God makes it grow. God makes it grow. God will build the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against what Jesus is building. It will not fail. Nothing, nothing, it will, you can't fail. You can't fail. Why? Because God is the one producing the fruit. The new creation is the opposite of everything else. New creation, Jesus is the king. In the new creation, Jesus is the Adam. In the new creation, Jesus is delivering people from the old age, from the bondage of trying to become right with God by the law, from the hopelessness of this world. And that counts for everything. Nothing else counts for anything. Right? You see how clearly God draws the lines, beloved? There's no, well, I mean, it counts. I mean, it, I mean, it counts. No, no. None of it. None of it. The cross is where the old died and the new began. Circumcision was part of the old age. The law was part of the old age. If we attach ourselves to those things, we'll fail to live as citizens of the new age where God no longer requires works to be right with Him, but only faith in His Son who, through the cross, bought our salvation, brings about this new age. This is what it means to belong to Christ. Everything in the world is dead to us. The only thing that isn't dead anymore or dying is the new creation. Verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, that is, all those who keep in step, same word as keep in step, walk by the Spirit, all those who keep in step with the rule of the new creation, the era of grace, the rule that says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matter anymore, right? For those who live by that rule, for all who live dead to this world in all its ways of trying to be made right with God, but are alive to Christ in the new creation by faith, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. It's not two different groups, by the way. It's not the church and ethnic Israel. No. There's not a chance that's what the text means, no matter what Schofield says. There's not a chance that's what the text means. That would turn Paul's whole argument on its head. He's labored for six straight chapters to show that there is no distinction whatsoever between Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ Jesus. So if at the end of the letter he inserts a distinction again, it would utterly confuse his audience at best. He is referring to the church, which consists of Jews and Gentiles who trust Christ. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Ephesians 2, 11 to 3, 10. Philippians 3, 3. And all through Galatians. 3, 27, 3, 29, 4, 28, 4, 31. Here in 6, 16. The Israel of God in the new creation are those who have faith in Christ. What a gift to close this letter with to Gentile 
Christians. You want to give to the church in every age. It's as if Paul is saying, that word you've always associated with those who are the real people of God, that's you now. You are in Christ, the seed of Abraham. In him you partake in the fulfillment of all God designed and promised. It is not replacement, it is fulfillment in Christ and in Christ alone. This fact is not new to the New Testament. Paul isn't making it up. He isn't spiritualizing the Old Testament scripture or taking it out of context. He interprets it correctly and with full apostolic authority. Paul sees the fulfillment of texts like Isaiah 19, 16 to 25, Psalm 22, 27 to 28, Psalm 67, 1 through 3, Amos 9, 11 and 12, Deuteronomy 28, 9 and 10, Zechariah 2, 10 and 11. He sees their fulfillment in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ when he calls the church the Israel of God. That's what we're hearing, that fulfillment has come. Galatians 6.16 echoes Isaiah 54.10. The promises in Isaiah of a new exodus, a new covenant, and a new creation have come to pass now that Jesus is risen from the dead. The new creation is here now according to the New Testament. And the peace and mercy of Isaiah 54 are pronounced upon its citizens, the church, those of faith like believing Abraham and in Galatians 6.16. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matter there. Only what Christ has accomplished. So, Paul says, from now on let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Leave me alone agitators and Judaizers. I've suffered enough because of people like you and the marks on my body. They're better than circumcision. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. That's the last word for the Galatians. So, beloved, is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with your spirit this morning. In what are you resting right now? In what do you boast right now? What do you truly plan on claiming as the reason God should accept you? On whose laurels do you rest this morning? Because if the cross of Jesus Christ means anything to us, it absolutely means that there is no reason for a human being to boast in themselves. God's plan of salvation utterly excludes all human effort, pride, dependence, accomplishment, or ability. God saves as it is described in Galatians because we have nothing He will accept. We must cling to His Son with everything and boast only in the cross. We're, we realize, right, that the blood of Jesus Christ is more precious than anything we can possibly imagine. Right? I mean, when we sing songs that talk about blood and as time goes on, you know, it feels weird. It feels weird to sing about that. And 
it's really hard to talk to people about that as, as time goes on because it just sounds so weird and archaic and, and foreign and it's so easy to make fun of and deride and all these things. And it, it's like, it's the most precious thing there is. So let us go on up to the mountain of mercy, to the crimson perpetual tide. Lay down on the shore. Be thirsty no more. Go under and be purified. Will you die that you may live? Will you surrender every claim to yourself? every claim to yourself and come to Him for forgiveness. Come to Him for righteousness and boast forevermore only in the cross. It doesn't sound like it because we've been trained to see ourselves a certain way all through our lives. The fact that God will accept nothing you have is the best news in the universe. It means salvation is indiscriminate. And any and all who desire may come and drink of the water of life for absolutely free. What could possibly hold you back from this? Believer, why would you not want to embrace this? Unbeliever, why would you want to stay away? You're welcome to come this morning as we sing. If you'd like to pray, anything like that, if you want to join our church, if you have accepted Christ and you want to be baptized and show publicly what He has done, you're welcome to come. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for the book of Galatians. Lord, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word that makes the cross so central. Lord, it gave way to the resurrection, which is why we have life. So, Father, you've taken care of the sins we have committed. You've taken care of the righteousness we have not. All at the cross, all through Christ, and what he accomplished there by dying and rising from the dead after living the perfect life for you that we never could have lived and offering that on our behalf that we might come to you for free and live forever. So, Lord, this is our boast. All on your Son. All on your Son. I ask and pray these things in the name of this Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Christians will come and we'll have the Lord's Supper together. We gather this morning to take the Lord's Supper together in this bread and cup that signify the broken body, the spilled and precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We proclaim His death once more as we are told in Scripture by remembering what He has accomplished for us. The Apostle Paul again wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Corey, would you pray for the bread, please? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to come to this table, this precious table. We thank you for the opportunity to not only examine ourselves, rather examine our boast. We pray that each of us would boast only at the cross. Lord, that this bread a symbol of your body that was broken at the cross for us. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ through which we are saved. We praise you, Father, and thank you. May we remember him as we take this in all ways. And in his name we pray. Amen. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Today would you pray for the cup. Father, we stand before you even now. Pray, Father, we might do a self-evaluation, Lord, of our spiritual condition before you. And, and as we come to uh, partake of this, this ordinance you've set before us, we pray, Father, you might just, just be glorified through it. And that we might recognize and remember the true sacrifice of your blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. And we may just give you glory for it as we, we meditate and regurgitate the words of you've sent through your pastor today, Lord, you pray might just speak to our hearts and, and we may recognize that it's all about you, it's not about us, Father. So we ask, Lord, you might just guide us and direct us as we leave here. You may be glorified through it and through our lives. For in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, by the giving of his life, we receive life by believing on him and in him alone. And so, Lord, may we remember what it costs for us that we might live in freedom and joy and happiness and thanksgiving, that you might be glorified in our words and our deeds. All hope is in Christ because of this blood. And in his name we pray. Amen. Just a reminder that the deacons will be at the exits to collect for the benevolence offering. Uh, Would you please stand? Sing our song and you'll be dismissed. I hope that you leave today in joy and in hope at this message. It is meant for that purpose. It's Christ alone. Let's sing together.